That was yesterday, nearly 300 people serving on Love Week. You heard 25,000 meals served, several places served, and all week long, we're going to do that. So the second Sunday in the history of our church was September 25th, 2011, and I had a dilemma. And here was my dilemma. Our church was holding its second public service ever, and my son had a football game at noon, and I was his third grade football coach. Uh, and I asked our people, I said, what am I going to do? You know, second Sunday of the church, a brand new church planner can't just disappear after church and not stay around and meet people. I don't think that sets a very good tone, but my son is playing like in his second tackle football game ever. So I, I didn't know what to do. So I called Pastor Brian Beloy, who spoke here six weeks ago. And I said, Pastor Brian, here's my dilemma. What, what am I going to do? And he said, well, Christian, I don't see a dilemma at all. What do you think is your dilemma? And I said, well, our church is, is two weeks old. Um, you know, I don't want to stand up on the stage and tell the people I'm leaving kind of like, see you later. Don't you think I should be around for them in case they have a pastoral need? But my son is playing in his second tackle football game ever. And I'm one of the coaches on the team. What do I do? And he said, well, what, what do you think the people need from you at the end of service? And I said, well, what if somebody needs some ministry help? What if somebody needs prayer? What if somebody has questions about the church? What if somebody has spiritual questions? And he said, don't you have any other pastors on staff? And at the time, we had three other pastors who were raising their support to help us start our church. And I said, yeah, we've got three of those. He said, well, Christian, I don't see a dilemma at all. He said, if the people in your church need a pastor, you have three that are going to be there for them. If your son needs a dad, he has one. I don't see a dilemma at all. You got to go be with your son. That second Sunday of our church, I got up, I preached, and I told the people, I'm so thankful you've come to like this brand new church that we have, but here's my dilemma. I can't stay and say hi to everyone today as much as I want to. My son's getting ready to start a football game, and if I don't walk off the stage and be the first one out of the parking lot, I'm not going to be there on time. So um, I want you to know this is going to be a church that always teaches you to put God and family above everyone else. So I am off to go be a dad to my son. And the people started cheering. It was the weirdest thing ever, like hundreds of them I'd never met in my life. And they kind of applauded and said, like, that's the type of church we want to be a part of. And for seven years, we've been a church that said, pursue God, pursue family, and kind of everything else just settles into place. And I am so grateful for our elder team, some of them who are here today, for our personnel team, that they've decided that our church staff, after we've been on staff for seven years, will practice a little bit of a biblical time called sabbatical. Even, even though none of them have been able to do that probably in their business life or their career, they've said at our church, God and family health are going to be really, really important. And we're just going to trust God to take care of the church while we ask the people who are leading us spiritually to really take care of themselves and take care of their family spiritually. So as I come back today after six weeks of being gone, and if you're brand new in the, in the last six weeks, welcome. I'm Christian. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm usually the guy up here um, who does this. I got a text from one of our people this week that said, I just heard you've been gone the last six weeks. I texted him back and said, now I have just heard you've been gone the last six weeks. But yeah, you are right. That is true. If, you've, if you're like, if you don't know what's been going on, just welcome to a regular Sunday back at church. But for those of you who are aware of the summer break, I do want to say a big thank you to our elders and our personnel team for believing in this process. I want to say a big thank you to our staff. The staff at our church is unbelievable, particularly Pastor Ryan Holt and Pastor Scott Courtney, who have just led our church in my absence and said, we are going to take over as if it's our church um, and we are in charge. Our speakers, I hope you were blessed this summer by the speakers that we brought in, my spiritual friends, my spiritual fathers, Pastor Brian Beloy, Pastor Daniel Floyd, um, Pastor Mac Lake, who was here, Pastor Dan Sutherland, who was here last week. I probably 
probably had more questions about Dan's message than anyone else. People said we loved him the most, but no, I don't smoke cigars with him. Everyone has asked me, so no, I, I don't. I love Dan. I go sit while he smokes cigars and listen to him teach us about church planning, um, but no, I don't do that. And Noel Yates, um, I just cried as I listened to her tell her stories of rescuing kids and women from all over the world. They were unbelievable. And let me say a huge thank you to our church. Um, Our first speaker, Pastor Brian, he said, you're going to learn what type of church you have this summer. You're going to learn whether or not you've built a church who's connected to a person um, who's a pastor or a person named Jesus. And they said sabbatical does something weird in a church because it shows you whether the church is there for the mission, whether it's there for the message, whether they're there for each other, or whether they're just there for the guy on the stage. And here's what's happened since I've been gone. Our attendance is 30% higher than it was that last six weeks last year. Our giving was 40% higher than it was in the same six weeks last year. We've had nearly 200 spiritual decisions. When I told the guys that, they said, it's very possible you should never go back. It sounds like your church is actually better without you. Um, so hopefully you have, hopefully you've realized this summer you don't need me, but hopefully you still want me around every now and then. Um, but what it proves is we have a really mature people and we've got a really strong church. And I want you to know we've missed you. Uh, man, we've missed you like crazy. Someone said, what's it feel like to not go to church for six weeks? I wouldn't know because we went to church almost every week on Sunday. It's difficult for me not to go to church. I've got some friends who own gyms, and I promise you if they took six weeks away from the gym, they wouldn't take six weeks away from working out. When you see people who look strong, there's a reason they look strong. And I want to be strong spiritually, and I've learned you can't be strong spiritually without engaging in the things God has given you to engage in. And people who don't go to the gym for six weeks don't look very strong physically, and people who don't go to church for six weeks probably don't feel very strong spiritually. So Danielle, and I each week were at different churches and each week we walked out and thought, man, we miss journey. We miss our friends. We miss our people. We miss what God is doing in our church. I miss teaching you what I learned because that's what I do every Sunday. I bring what God has been teaching me and, and I give it to you. I bring what God has been using in my life to transform me. And every Sunday I give that to you, which means this, I've got six weeks of messages from God to give you this morning. So settle in. This is going to be the best three-hour message you've ever heard because <laughs> I've just been like collecting thoughts. Actually, I'm going to try to give you four lessons that I've learned, but it's going to take me two weeks to do it. I know we were in the book of Judges. I thought, you know, I don't really want to dig into Judges. I want to talk to the people about what God's been talking to me about. So if you haven't already, take your notes out of your bulletin. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Leviticus chapter 25. That's right. We're going to get really exciting and jump right into Leviticus coming off sabbatical. And I want to give you what I'm calling secrets to sabbatical, part one, part two. What have I learned trying to trust in God at the highest level that I have ever been asked to trust in God. Leviticus chapter 25, you can fire up your Journey Church International app. Everything that you see on the screen will be right on your handheld device. And here are some quick facts about Leviticus for those of you who don't spend a lot of time learning there. Leviticus is named after the tribe of the Levites. Remember, um, Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons would become 12 tribes or states, communities in the nation of Israel. Leviticus is one of those. It was the only tribe in Israel to have a book named after them. There are no other books in the Bible named after a tribe. 
tribe except for Leviticus. It's named after the Levites because it talks about them the entire time. The Levites got their own book, but that's about all they got out of their inheritance as a lasting legacy because they would have no land grant like every other tribe. Every other tribe would get a place. The Levites would get a role, and their role was to minister before the Lord and to the people. Basically, the purpose of the Levites was to serve in a way that allowed God to dwell in the midst of Israel. Their job was keep God here. That was the job of the Levites. That is the book of Leviticus to teach people how to be connected to God, which means Leviticus is a picture of Jesus. Leviticus is a picture of Jesus in two very specific ways. Leviticus shows us what the perfection of God looks like, just like Jesus' life would show us what the perfection of God looks like. Leviticus also shows us what the penalty and punishment for a failure of that perfection looks like, and the life of Jesus would do that as well. So Leviticus is really not a book of rules. It's a book of relationship between God and his people. Leviticus is a picture of Jesus, and it's a book that must be viewed through the lens of people who are saying, I want to be close to God. I want to be connected to God. What does God say I need to do to make that happen? If your desire is to be close to God and have him in your life, Leviticus is a book you should be aware of. So let me ask you this morning. It's August. Another month of the year has gone by. We're on the downhill slide now. We're in the eighth month of the year. Do you find yourself in 2018 desiring to be close to God or desiring to be closer to God? Has anything in your life happened this year where you've thought, I need to be closer to God or I'm not as close to God as I should be or I'm not as close to God as I used to be? If the sabbatical this summer taught me anything, it's this, I need God. I need God in my life. I need his word every day. I needed to learn how to take time to pray again uninterrupted. I needed every week to go and worship with people uh, led by gifted musicians from a stage. I needed to sit in a seat and I needed to hear someone open the word of God and give me a challenge straight to my heart. Then you know what I realized? We need our friendships. We need people. We need our small groups. We need our friends. We needed to spend time with God because we want to be close to God. I'm more passionate than ever about helping people stay close to God because I believe that is the secret to having a life that is fulfilling. And that is actually the whole point of this Sabbath year or sabbatical year anyway, to teach the people how to be close to God. We find it in Leviticus 25. Maybe you've never read it. The next two weeks, we'll look at it a little bit. As we read Leviticus 25, would you do this? Would you take a deep breath? Would you just close your eyes for a minute and would you pray this prayer? Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. You don't have to pray it out loud, but would you right now just a state of prayer? I never open my Bible at home and read it without realizing I'm reading the very words of God. So would you right now take a deep breath and say, speak, Lord, because your servant is listening. Now, God, as we prepare to read your words, you speak, not me, you. Speak to us about what we need to hear. We are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Leviticus 25 starts out this way. We'll read the first seven verses. Then we'll come back in a little bit to verse 18, so keep it open. It says, The Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land, I'm going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years sow your fields, and for six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath To the Lord, don't sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Don't reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. 
Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, your male and female servants, and the hired worker and temporary resident who live among you, as well as for your livestock and the wild animals in your land. Whatever the land produces may be eating. So here's where we are. God has rescued a people, the people of Israel, from a land of slavery, and he's taking them to the land of promise. It's called the land of milk and honey. Milk signifying that it will support all the flocks and the herds that they have. Honey symbolizing that it'll be a land of great agriculture because honey is date palm honey. It grows on trees, not from beehives in Israel. We were told it would be a land that would be a land of walled cities, which means they would be protected. They would be safe for the first time in the history of their country. We're told it would be a land that was nourished, which means it would have water on both sides, the Mediterranean Sea on the west, the Jordan River on the east, and right down the middle, natural springs that would water the entire land. God said, this promised land is where you're going, and when you get there, you're really going to enjoy it, but the seventh year is going to be a special year. It's going to be a Sabbath year. Later in Scripture, we'll hear it called a sabbatical year. And after studying this Sabbath year for years, after experiencing this concept over an extended season the last few weeks, there's a couple things I learned about this whole concept of sabbatical and Sabbath that I think God wants all of us to learn from Leviticus chapter 25. The first is this. The sabbatical year was a test of rest. We're actually going to find out the sabbatical year was a test. It was a test of four things, but first it was a test of rest. Look at Leviticus 25 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, underline the words at Mount Sinai, because this gives us a date in history. We're told the Israelites got to Mount Sinai on the first day of the third month after they had left slavery, which means they had been slaves for 430 years. They had been free for 60 days, and on the 61st day, they get to Mount Sinai, and here's what God says. You've been slaves for 430 years. You've been free for two months. Now, here's one of the first things I'm going to need you to do when you get set up. Take a year off. You would think anyone who heard that thought, this is awesome. Like, not only do we get to go to the promised land, we get to take a year off in the promised land, but it wasn't awesome for Israel. Because for Israel, this was a test of rest. And here's what you need to understand. Israel didn't rest well. Israel didn't rest well. So my kids live here and work here and play here and play sports here, which means all summer, for the most part, I was here. We weren't able to kind of leave and go away like so many pastors do on their sabbatical. So every day I saw people from our church at the gym and in the grocery store and restaurants and just random, random places. And everyone would ask, how's the sabbatical going? I can't tell you how encouraged I was. The dozens of texts that I got from people in our church saying, I heard you're on sabbatical. We're so happy for you. We're praying for you. You need the rest. Come back stronger. The number of people that reached out and said, man, we're for you. Enjoy your six weeks. We're going to be here when you get back. Every week just comforted my heart. Thank you if you were one of those people. But everyone I saw said, how's the sabbatical going? And I kind of I memorized an answer that, that went something like that. So after two or three weeks, and it was true, People say, how's the sabbatical going? I would say this, it's going great, but I can't wait to get back. It's true. It's going great, but I can't wait to get back. I've never missed more than two Sundays in a row at our church. So after three, it's like, oh my goodness, I have three more. How's the sabbatical going? It's going great, but I can't wait to get back. And then I would say this, I don't rest well. I don't rest well. Driving my wife crazy, driving my kids crazy. I need something to do. I don't rest well. 
I, I said this dozens of times this summer. It's going great. Can't wait to get back. I don't rest well. And someone in one of those conversations, I said, I don't rest well. And they said, why? And I thought, I don't know why. I have I actually, it's kind of just something I said, but it, is, but it is true. I am driving everyone crazy. And that, that question just stuck in my head. Every time I would hear myself saying, I don't rest well, I would hear that voice say, why? And what I learned about myself was a pretty ugly secret spiritually that God showed me on my journey of sabbatical. But let me show it to you through Israel first. See, in Exodus chapter 16, Israel's been away from Egypt now for 45 days. And they're out of food. I mean, this makes sense. They probably took about 10 to 15 days worth of cooked food, pre-prepared, food that wouldn't mold. They were specifically told to make bread that couldn't get mold in it because it didn't have yeast in it. So after about two weeks, they ran out of what they had pre-cooked. And then I'm sure they brought all kinds of flour, just as much as they could carry for the rest of the meals. And that lasted them about a month. And after about 45 days, they ran out of food. And they went to Moses and they said, we are going to starve. So Moses went to God and he said, God, the people are going to starve. And God said, no, they're not. I'm going to give them food. Tell them when they wake up in the morning, food will have fallen from heaven. Bread from heaven will have fallen. God never used the word manna. The word manna is a Hebrew word that means what is it? The people named the bread manna. They picked it up and said manna, meaning what is this? Moses said, it's the bread from heaven. So they're like manna. Like, okay, we're we're going to eat the what is it for the next 40 years every day of our life. But inside this blessing of food was this test of rest. Because I'm going to give it to you. Every day I'm going to give it to you, except the seventh day. But don't worry, on the sixth day I'll give you twice as much as you need, so you won't have to get any on the seventh day. Inside the provision was a test of rest. Here's how it goes in Exodus chapter 16. You don't have to flip over there. I'll kind of jump around the text. It'll be on the screen. Here's how it went down. Then the Lord said to Moses, Exodus 16, 4, I'm going to rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day. They're going to gather enough for that day. And this way I'm going to test them. And I'm going to see whether they'll follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in. And that should be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Verse 21. It says, each morning everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake, boil what you want to boil, save whatever is left and keep it until morning. Verse 27, nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long are you going to refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind. That the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That's why on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is just to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on that seventh day. 45 days of freedom. A little bit of work. God says you're going to have to go out. I mean, after 430 years of slave-driven work, God said you are going to have to go out every morning and kind of pick up some food. 45 days of freedom. Six days of work and then a day off. Probably for most of Israel, the first routine day off in their entire life, they did not get weekends off in slavery while they were in Egypt. Probably the first time in their life, they were given permission not to work, to take a day off. And many refused it. I think there's two reasons for that. 
One of them I'll give you next week, and it involves a story about a grizzly bear. There's my teaser. You should come back. One of them I'll give you today. Why did the people refuse it? You know, you read this and you think maybe they didn't need a day off. I'm sure they weren't tired. They'd had 45 straight days of kind of not having to work. Maybe when God said work for six, take the seventh. Maybe after the sixth day, they said, I'm not tired yet. I'm willing to keep working. Maybe, but maybe it was something more. Maybe they went out because they were afraid if they didn't, they'd be left with nothing. You see, as I study the story of Israel's Sabbaths and sabbaticals, here's what I learned. Israel struggled to rest well because they struggled to trust well. And as I said over and over this summer, sabbatical's going great, but I can't wait to get back. I don't rest well. And every time I said that, I heard why. Eventually, I had to answer very honestly to God. God, I don't think I rest well because, God, I don't know that I trust you well. You see, Israel's actions were saying, I know what God has said, but here's how I'm going to do things. We could go a step further. Israel's actions were saying, I know what God has promised me if I live a certain way. But I'm going to live this way just in case. Which allows all of us to ask a key question. Because all of a sudden, the areas where we can't rest become kind of flashing lights in our life as areas that we don't trust. Where right now is a lack of rest in your life? A signal. But you just aren't trusting God because you can't be at rest because you just don't trust your job, maybe your health, your kids. A lot of us have flashing lights around our kids. It's flashing lights signal more than something's wrong with them. It might mean something's wrong with us and that we just don't trust our kids with God, our marriage. Some of you are worried sick about your marriage. You have no rest In your marriage right now? Is it because you don't trust what God's trying to do in your marriage? Your friends? Some of you juniors and seniors, maybe your college choice, you're not at rest there. Some of our single adults, your singleness. I wrote this message much earlier this week and wrote that word singleness in this message and already this morning had two conversations with adults who just said, I'm fighting it. So I just don't want you to think, I just threw that in there because I talked to you this morning. God threw that in there because he knew you were struggling this morning. Your finances. You see, the areas where we don't rest are often areas where we don't trust. And God said, those are areas I can work in. Those are areas I'd like to work in. See, sabbatical becomes a test of rest, but a test of rest will always become, number two, a test of trust. A test of rest is going to become a test of trust. Do you know the most difficult question, the most difficult decision you have to make every day is when you don't work for six weeks, it's this, what are we going to eat? Like like every day you wake up and it's like, there's nothing on the schedule again. So what are we going to eat? Like I said, I just drove Danielle crazy because every day it's like somebody has to tell me what to do. I'm used to rhythm and routine. So what are we going to do today? Where are we going to go today? What are we going to eat today? Israel had the same question. It's a great question. God says, you're not going to sow. You're not going to reap. Israel had to think, what, what are we going to eat? Like if we don't sow and we don't reap, how are we going to eat? It's a great question. And God actually answered that within the test of rest. There was this test of trust. If you still have your Bibles open, look at Leviticus chapter 25, verse 18. Here's what God says. He answers this very good question. If we don't sow and reap, what are we going to eat? God says, follow my decrees 
and be careful to obey my laws. And then you'll live safely in the land. Then the land will yield its fruit. And you'll eat your fill and you'll live there in safety. You may ask, they sure would, what are we going to eat in the seventh year if we don't plant or harvest our crops? God said, I'll send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. While you plant during the eighth year, you're going to eat from the old crop. And you're going to keep eating from the old crop until the harvest of the ninth year comes in. Now, here's where all of us reading this story in our American mindset think this. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Like we live in the heartland. We live in the plains. We know how sowing and reaping and farming works. The land doesn't just produce stuff. We have to work too. The ground can't produce stuff all by itself, can it, God, without any work from me? I mean, don't we all think if I don't work hard, there won't be a crop? As if we're like ever really in control of that. I mean, we can be in control of the planting, but are we ever really in control of the growing? For those of you who say yes, what's the process when the sun decides to go away for 45 days? What's the process when the rain decides to go? Well, we'll irrigate. You'll irrigate year after year after year. It is God who grows things. One of the biggest sabbatical lessons I learned about trust was this. Listen closely. This is for someone in the room other than me. Most people underestimate the amount of influence they have on a daily basis, and they overestimate the amount of control they have on a daily basis. Most people really underestimate How important every day is in the life of people you interact with and how much influence you can have on the people you interact with daily. And you overestimate how much control you actually have of anything. You think I'm in control of everything, but often that leaves you with no time for anything. I kept a little journal this summer on sabbatical and I thought everything that I learned during sabbatical that I think I only learned because of sabbatical, I'm going to write. The first lesson that I wrote was on the third day of sabbatical. I was out with my kids. We were having lunch someplace and I just found myself totally into them, listening to them, talking to them, looking at them. It was a strange meal for me. And I kept thinking, what, like, what, what is going on? Are there stories better? Is the food better? Like what is going on that I am like so clearly engaged here? And I stopped to think and I thought, I have nothing going on tomorrow. Like I am fully engaged here because I am not thinking about what's coming next because there's nothing coming next. And I pulled out my little journal and I wrote, I miss time in every today thinking about tomorrow. I miss time in every today concerned with trying to control tomorrow. I miss people in every today and people moments because I am thinking about tomorrow. And I learned I underestimate the amount of influence I have on a daily basis and I overestimate by thinking about it so much the amount of control I have on a daily basis as if I have any control at all. Let me ask you a question. Will you spend five minutes today thinking about tomorrow, worrying about tomorrow, troubleshooting in your mind something about tomorrow, thinking tomorrow, if this happens, I'll do this, and if this happens, I'll do this, and if this doesn't happen, maybe I'll do this. Will you spend even five minutes kind of processing tomorrow? Because what if those five minutes thinking about tomorrow were five minutes missed in today? What if those were five texts 
that you could send to friends and family members saying, I believe in you today. Here's a Bible verse I read that really spoke to me today. Hey, I want you to know I saw a Facebook post. You seem down. It'll be okay. Hey, I want you to know I was saying, what if, what if just five minutes spent worrying about tomorrow could be poured into today and the influence of today? What would that do for your life and your relationships if you didn't lose time in every today worrying about tomorrow? I heard a pastor say once, the most regretful type of life to live is a life lived tolerating today while reaching for tomorrow. Because what happens is you lose every day and you never get to the tomorrow you want to. How many of you are tolerating today? Because you can't wait to get to tomorrow. But you're missing today. Because you're thinking so much about tomorrow. You know, Deuteronomy 29, 29 is one of my favorite verses. It says this, the revealed things belong to us and our children. But the secret things, those belong to God. God says this, what I show you, pour your life into. What I don't show you, trust me with. The revealed things, they belong to us and our children. Those things today, today belongs to those and those in front of you. Tomorrow belongs to the one who's inside of you that you can trust. Today belongs to you and your children and your friendships. Today belongs to you. Today what's in front of you, live it with influence. Tomorrow, that's God's. Matthew 6.34 says, quit wasting time today worrying about tomorrow. You can't change anything about tomorrow today. But you can miss today thinking about tomorrow. Live fully every day with who's in front of you. Trust fully in the one who gave his life for you to, for tomorrow. Think about it this way. Today is for who I see. Tomorrow is for who I trust. Say this phrase with me. I won't miss today. Say that out loud. Because I trust who controls tomorrow. Say it again. I won't miss today. Because I trust who controls tomorrow. Now say it to someone sitting next to you. I'm not going to miss today. Because I trust who controls tomorrow. What if that was real? What if I could change? And you could change? And like Rocky says at the end of Rocky 4, we all could change, right? Like what, like what if that could happen? What if we could become a people so focused on the influence that we have today? And so sure of the God who controls tomorrow that we don't miss entire meals with our family where we are physically present and physically eating, but mentally totally disengaged. Today is what for, for who we can see. Tomorrow is for who we can trust. And Israel didn't trust God, so they couldn't quit thinking about tomorrow. And because they couldn't quit thinking about tomorrow, they lost too many todays. Sabbatical is a test of our trust. So I found myself this summer having conversations with God that went like this. God, I struggle to rest. Why? It took me a little while to answer the question, but it's because God, I struggle to trust. And God said, with what? I said, God, I think I struggle to trust most that, you know, just that the church is going to stay strong. And God said, because you're in control of that? And it was like, well, like, like, aren't we kind of like partners? Like, Fist bump? Listen to what God said to me. I tried to fist bump him. Listen to what God said to me because he's saying it to some of you about your business. He's saying to some of you, some of you, he's saying this to some of you about your team. He's saying this to some of you about your family. He's saying this to some of you about your classroom. Here's what God's saying. As God slapped down my fist bump, he said, listen, you're not my partner. 
you're my servant. You're not my partner, you're my servant. And I have gifted you, and I have put you like Esther where I want you, when I want you, and I have told you how to live your life every day, but you are not in control of the outcome. That's my job. We're not partners. It's not 50 50, it's 100 and zero. But I'm going to use you. I would love to use you. And if you are faithful every day, I'll use you more than you could even imagine you could be used. But don't give me the partnership stuff. I have one partner. His name was Jesus. And unless you are willing to do what he did, you remain a servant. So go serve well. What's right in front of you is for you. What's not in front of you is for me. So trust me. And quit losing today's thinking about tomorrow's. 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 7 says it this way. I planted the seed, Paul says. I did my job. Apollos watered it. He did his job. But God makes things grow. Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. But only God. God is the one who makes things grow. So I've learned as Christians, if our primary motivation every day is to please God, by loving God, by loving family, by encouraging people in front of us what we see, if our primary motivation will become to please God in our daily work, then I believe we'll see our lives become pleasing to God, like Romans 12, 2 says, and our needs will be provided for by God because he says we can trust him. But if our primary motivation is always to provide for ourselves, take care of the product, the bottom line, we might end up not pleasing God and not providing for ourselves at the same time. You see, when we take control of the outcomes, we find ourselves disobedient, distracted, or just absent from the process of loving and leading and influencing what's right in front of us on a daily basis. So I have learned as I've begun to study that nearly every area of spiritual disobedience really begins with a lack of trust that God is in control. Why don't we rest? Because if we do, what will happen? That's really up to God. If God says rest every seventh day, then we rest every seventh day, and we let God take care of that with our giving. So if I give, how am I going to be provided for? Ultimately, that's a trust issue with God, with forgiving someone. What if I forgive them and they go and repeat it again? That actually, that tomorrow stuff, that's all on God. Today is for you. What about being honest? If I'm honest with someone about this thing, what will happen tomorrow? All you can do is be honest today and trust God with tomorrow. What about spending time with God daily? If I do that, I won't have time for something else. I've been wearing this white band all year that reminds me if I spend 1% of my day, 14 minutes and 40 seconds, 1% of my day, 1% of my day with God, I can read through the entire Bible in the year and still live 99% of my day for myself. So I don't have 15 minutes to give God. It's because you worry about what you're stealing 15 minutes from. Disobedience often begins with a lack of trust. But here's what you need to know. God will never give you a command that doesn't result in your spiritual best being produced. If God told the land, take a year off, that's what was best for the land. We'll talk about that next week a little more. God says, give a little bit. That's what's best for you. If God says, love, even when you're hurt, that's what's best. If God says, forgive like I've forgiven you, that's what's best. If God says, trust me with tomorrow, that's what's best. God will never give you a command that doesn't result in your spiritual best being produced. But you have to trust enough to follow. Listen, and you have to follow more than a day. 
You have to trust enough to follow, and you have to follow long enough that you begin to experience. And as you experience God coming through time and time again, you will begin to know, not to think, not to hope, but to know that you can trust God with everything he's given you to do. God is in control, and that means everything's going to be okay. God said, listen, if you will take this three years, if you will take this three-year period and then just watch what comes out of the ground at the end of it, you'll know that I'm always going to take care of you. Years later, God would give us another three-year period to watch. A man named Jesus would come. He'd be baptized and he would minister for three years. And God would say, if you will watch this three years, and at the end of three years, what rises out of the ground after three days you'll know you can always trust me, but you got to look to Jesus. You say, but I've got this tomorrow. God said, no, no, you got, you got me tomorrow. You got Jesus today. You got your husband and your wife today. You got your kids today. You got a neighbor who needs encouragement today. You got a teammate. You got a student. You get the idea. You got today. I got tomorrow. You live today. Let me take care of tomorrow and let's watch the kingdom of God continue to expand, not as partners, but as servants, as one who doesn't need us, but who is willing to use us if we'll rest in him and if we'll trust in him. What area of spiritual rest are you struggling with right now that is nothing more than a flashing light of a trust problem with you that you need to say this morning, God, I realize because I have no rest here, I don't have a lot of trust here. I need you to help me. Show me what I can do every today. Just help me to trust you with every tomorrow. Because if you can trust enough to follow one day at a time, and you follow enough one days at a time to experience, that experience will lead to a knowledge that God is there, he's in control, and you can trust him. Will you bow your heads and pray with me this morning?